do that from from the Persian uh, emperor, but it's not panning out. Everyone has all of these uh, disparate ways that they want things to be carried out. We want the temple to face this way. We want uh, we want it to be so large, but we can't do that. So we want it to be this size. Uh, we want it to be built out of this type of material or that, and just infighting and frustrations and annoyances and and people just kind of come to it and lose their mind for it. And so they go off and start building their own houses. Haggai is sent to them to correct that. And then here in the vision of the golden lampstands here in Zechariah 4. Um, yeah, let's, let's read this. It's not a long, uh, it's not a long uh, chapter here. It's only 14 verses. Um, obviously, it's, it's verse 6 that everyone's aware of. Uh, but we'll read straight through the whole chapter here. The vision of the golden lampstand, Zechariah 4. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and with seven lamps on it and seven lips on each of these lamps that are coming out of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, uh, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward uh, the top stone amid the shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent, uh, sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then seven, uh, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time answered and said to me, what are the two branches on the tops of the olive trees, which are beside the gold, two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, at first read, that doesn't seem to clarify much. Uh, when, you're, when you're walking through this, you kind of just go and, all right, just, just help me understand what in the world is going on. You have this lampstand that um, basically how a lamp would work at that time, you would have a huge bowl and then out of the side of it would be a lip that would allow the oil to get really, really thin out to it so you could set it on fire because uh, oil would only burn. It wouldn't burn deep in a uh, bowl. You wouldn't want to do that. It's way too much soot. And so you would have this lip extend out to the end where the oil would be drawn smooth and flat and very thin, and it would light. Well, what it's describing is, is not only are the lamps going out, but each of those have seven lips on them. So it's kind of like, it's not just a regular menorah. It's like this super menorah with 49 lit things all around the sides. And what he's saying here, he says, okay, this part represents the fact that the power of comes from this is the attention of the Lord. It's the eyes of the Lord throughout the whole earth. In other words, the Lord sees all that's going on. The Lord has promised that this house is being built. He is not surprised by your situation. That's actually a remarkable promise, isn't it? a promise that is actually eternal. 
for all things, because this is not the only time where God is omniscient of all things and still making his promises. It means that no matter what situation we find ourselves, they find themselves in a remarkably despondent situation, but they're holding the promises of the Lord and they're saying the resources that I have do not match what I expect the outcome of the promises to be. And God says, I I see all things. In fact, one of the first names in the book of Genesis that someone gives to the Lord is Jehovah Jireh. Anyone know what that means? It was given by uh, the handmaid Hagar to, to God when she was cast out from, from Abraham and Sarah and sent off into the wilderness. Remember, I mean, she's a slave girl that now has this baby Ishmael. What are they supposed to be doing and she's sent off there, and the Lord provides for her there, and that's exactly what she calls back to him. You are the God who sees. The God who sees to it. The God who provides. All of that is, is coming to a head in these things, and that the Lord's attention and insistence to continue to work his promises means that whatever we are working with and what we can see, if it's not enough... That does not affect the Lord's promises. We can't see everything. Are you able to see every contingency and every resource that's at work? To be able to exude every power, every bit of might or tool or resource that we have? The answer is no. And this is where God makes really, really clear. It is when our weakness is on display that we see his promises more clearly. Right? We see this in the New Testament, don't we? where uh, the Apostle Paul lays out this reality that it is in our weakness that we are made strong. It is not in our strength. God does not choose us and say, you know what, I could really use the strength that you have in my kingdom. No, and he makes really, really clear here in the middle of this to express, none of this is by might. None of these things are accomplished by power. How are they accomplished according to verse 6? Only by my spirit. The power, the resources, and the planning of man cannot bring about the promises of God. I want that to really settle in solidly because this is where the Old Testament prophets end. There is coming a promised one in the days of the prophets. This is what they're focused on. There is coming a promised one, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. There is coming a promised one who will bring about the salvation of God's people. What can you do about that? Can you make it happen sooner? Later? Can you make it more effective? Happen the way you want? Set up the resources just right. Set up the times and seasons, the epochs of times and the the fall and the rises of empires. What king should be in place? Can we do any of this? There is absolutely nothing in our power or in our might that brings about the promises of God. Now let me extend that a little bit further because this sets us up for the expressed way that salvation works in the New Testament. What can we do to bring about the promise of God to save our souls? Can we accomplish it? It's not by power, 
It's not by might. We can't make that transition. We can't provide the resources. We can't make the promises. We only depend on the promises made. God will save those who trust in Christ. This this was not a new teaching. This was not a new concept. This is the way salvation has always been. Trust in the Lord. Commit your way to him and he will see to it. Now, did they fully understand how that worked in the Old Testament? Nope. Nope. Do we? Nope. We were given just a little bit more than the Old Testament saints are given. We are not shown all of salvation. We aren't. Peter even talks about the fact that there is aspects of salvation that are ready to be revealed at the last time. We don't even understand the full mechanics of salvation. If we think we do, we have a simplistic view of it. It is far beyond us because it is not based in something that we desired. It is based on something God promised. And Zechariah is setting up the people of God to interact with this reality of salvation. This is not something that you're going to accomplish. This is not something, even in just the building of the temple. Now you got to understand, when they're building this temple, when they finally go, fine, we will build this temple, we will do all of this, we will build it, we will get it, we'll get it finished, and then God will fill it with his glory, right? Who knows the story? They finished the temple and what happened? The glory of God never came to it. They stood there and waited. Never came. How frustrating would that be? How difficult would that be? Maybe we didn't build a temple big enough. Maybe it wasn't. We should have had better resources. You imagine the infighting? We should have done this. Did we fail to do something just right? We sit at the end of Holy Week this morning. It's Easter. And so you know I'm going to tie this into that. Think about the apostles. Think about the disciples the day before Easter. We expected the kingdom of God to arrive with power and great glory. And yet what happened? We just watched the Messiah be killed. We tried to do stuff. Peter picked up a sword and defended him in the Garden of Gethsemane, cutting off the high priest's guard's ear. How'd that work out? Jesus, right before he gets taken away, picks the ear up from the ground and does one of his final miracles and heals him on the spot. Now that's a story to tell. All the disciples were confused and frustrated and at a loss. What could we have done more? The answer is nothing, because nothing stops the promises of God, not even the ignorances of his people. God's promises will out. And this is, this is, these are the ground stones that are being laid. Notice that it is not, um, not by might, not by power, but by just a, a good resolve to follow the Lord's laws. No, that's part of might and that's part of power. We can't do that. It's never going to be sufficient. We do not make the promises of God actualize. We do not make them appear. Why? It's not what they were designed for. It's not what they were designed for. In fact, we see that in Zechariah 7. Go ahead and turn there. 
<clears throat> we see this natural response that sinful man has to the commands of God and to the ways of God. So we go to chapter 7. And again, a 14-verse chapter. It's not very long. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. By the way, uh, it's always very helpful that he gives the dates and stuff like that because Zechariah, kind of like Jeremiah, is not chronological. Uh, it's bizarre and strange and odd. So it's helpful that he does that every once in a while. Now the people of Bethel had uh, had sent uh, uh, to Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? In other words, is the temple going to be built really quick so we can stop the mourning? Because we always mourn at this time of the year, because that's when the temple is destroyed. And we've been doing it for 69, 70 years. Are we, are we nearing the end here? Do we keep mourning? The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, say to all the people of the land of the priests uh, and, and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh and in the, uh, for these 70 years, was it not for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Man, we're starting to sound like the New Testament, aren't we? Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refuse to pay attention and turned stubborn shoulder and, uh, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so when they called, I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left, that was left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Youch. The call is right back to the hardness of hearts, that should you follow in the footsteps of your fathers, you too would be scattered among the nations. The warning about this is not just a familiarity with the law, nor with a familiarity with the things that God has said, because here it says they refuse to pay attention. It's not that they didn't hear it. They did hear it, and then they stopped paying attention. They would not, they would not listen. They turned instead a stubborn shoulder and then put stoppers up in their ears. That's a really interesting way to put that. They made their hearts diamond hard. Does anyone else have a translation of that? I know that's um, it's a, it's a hard way to express it. Basically, it's the hardest of hard things at the beginning of verse twelve. Like flint. Like flint. Really, really, really hard rock. Why? Why would we make? And it's helpful to put ourselves into this. Why would we make our hearts hard? He answers it right there in verse 12. 
If they didn't make their hearts hard, what would they hear? Yeah. They would hear his law, and they would hear his promises that he had sent through the prophets. So that's interesting. Why is the natural response of the sinner to harden up the heart, otherwise they would hear the law of God and hear the promises of God? Don't, don't they want the promises of God? They don't want to be guilty. It does. It also means that we have to admit it's not by power and not by might. We, we don't like that. Not of us at all. If we are to hear, now, if, if it was just to stop up the words of the law, that would make one sense. But he's saying of both things, not only the promises, but also, or not only the law, but also the promises. They didn't want to hear the promises. Why? Because they can't make them happen. Think about the promises that God was speaking to his prophets. How many times have we seen him expressing this reality about the spirit of the Lord doing this, and we are of no help at all? In fact, we see that clearly said when we come to the New Testament. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. None. Zero. To absolutely none. We do not like hearing that. When God says that he's going to save his people from his sins, from their sins, you say, well, who wouldn't want that? The answer is everybody would not want that. We want to be able to be told, do this and you will live. That's what we want. Just do this list, and those who are the most obedient will live. But that's not what the law says. The law promises, and I'm just quoting Galatians here, the law promises that, do this and you will live, but it proved to be death to us, didn't it? Because, not because the law was bad, but because it revealed that we were. And it revealed that not only did we hate the law of God, when it showed us in our self-righteousness that we were incapable of such perfections, but the promises of God showed us our need to depend on him because he brings these things about, not us. This is one of those aspects of the coming of Christ and even of the resurrection of Christ. How many times did the disciples want Jesus to defend himself or to be able to take up arms to defend him on his behalf? And Jesus says, that's not how this works. If you want life that comes by the sword, what comes on its heels? Death by the sword. That's not the life I've come to bring for you. That's the life of the kingdoms of this world. Yeah, that's all we've ever had. And Jesus says, that's, that's how the kingdoms of this world interact. That's, that's not where my kingdom's from. And he does clarify to Pilate, because Pilate, on, on, um, in the middle of the night, that Thursday night, right before Good Friday, Pilate addresses this reality of him. He says, you know, you're a king about this. You say all of this. Where, where are your subjects? You know, what's, what's going on with this? And Jesus says, my, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would rise up and fight. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority to set you free? Basically, you're not, you're not even taking the outs I'm giving you. I have the power to do this. And what is Jesus' response to that? You have no authority unless it was given to you by my Father. There is nothing you have that I need. The promises of God are going to out. And so Pilate's like, 
if you truly want to be the king of the Jews, then I have the power to set you free and you will be the king of the Jews. Jesus says, you don't have the power to do that. I am already that. He says, but I'm going to put you to death. Won't that interrupt that? And then Jesus falls silence and lets it, lets it ride. Now, it, I, I think it's because we're so familiar with how it happened, we, we miss how surprising it was that Jesus went to the cross at all. And how overwhelmingly surprising it was that he rose from the dead. Because in retrospect, we look back at the Old Testament prophets and realize, oh, they've been talking about this for thousands of years. But in such ways that those who depended on themselves would never see it. Zechariah here is addressing this reality that we do not like in our sinful state to hear these things. We don't want to hear the law of God because it exposes our sin and guilt. And we don't want to hear the promises of God because it exposes our inadequacies. Yes, ma'am. Did the people in those days, did the majority of them read? Which days are you talking about? Okay, uh, before, in Christ's time. In Christ's time, uh, enough of them would, yes. Uh, Jewish people... Um, had much more of an oral culture still, but there was a lot more people are able to read than most most modern people like to imagine. Um, I was wondering, was it just the, the priest who would have had to transmit all the things that Christ was going to be? Or, I mean, because they could read it, but I mean, did the common person know all that, yeah, so, a lot of it was just spoken. So, uh, so okay, th- there's, there are multiple layers to the answer to that question. So the answer is yes and no. Um, one, yes, the priests for enacting these things, but it, was, it fell to the Pharisees and to the scribes as the teachers of the law to teach these things. They missed them. When they missed them, it became really difficult. This is one of the reasons why the public reading of Scripture should always be a part of the church, just in case its teachers are not right. And this thankfully happened in the synagogues. And so you see Jesus, even when he goes into the synagogue, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and he just reads it, right? Why? Because that's what we should be doing. Because not all the answers sit with our leaders. And sometimes our leaders have thoroughly missed maybe even the central aspect of the gospel itself. What's the corrective? The word of God is always the corrective. Uh, And so... So in the synagogue, they gave direct attention to this. In fact, most of the larger synagogues would actually have a wall of scrolls that they would just pull out and they would find where to read and read. And, and any, any, um, any man in the, in, the, uh, in the assembly would be able to come up and do so. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, it was the scribes and the teachers of the law job to do that. But it was everybody's responsibility to submit to the Lord on the basis of however much exposure to his revelation they had, right? So um, we are spoiled for the amount of exposure we have to Scripture. I mean, it's laughable. What we have in our generation is more than any other generation had times 20,000. It's just out of this world what we have access to. Um, as you go back further and further, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the reality of scripture, it's, it's much smaller and smaller and smaller, the further back you go in history. And, um, there was a lot of traditions that came up of, of people that would just be memorizing enormous sections of scripture. 
Um, the reality is, even if you only ever had exposure to the Torah, you can find salvation there. Absolutely. Moses wrote of the gospel, wrote of this reality that there is, there is a fealty and dependence on God's covenant faithfulness with his people that is written into the first books of the Bible. So even if that's all you had access to, still without excuse, it's right there, um, even in the opening chapters. So, um, yeah, so that's, there's, there's a lot more answer, flesh for that answer, but uh, the reality is everyone is responsible for what they've been exposed to. Uh, and because they are exposed to the scriptures, they're also held responsible if they allow false teaching, which comes up big time in the New Testament because Peter warns everyone in Second Peter chapter 2 that just as there used to be false prophets in the church, there will be false teachers. And if we allow ourselves to be blindsided by that, we will join them in hell. That's a terrifying chapter, by the way, Second Peter chapter 2. Um, and it, it really lights a fire under the leaders of a church to not allow such things and to the people of the church, not to allow leaders to do such things. Um, terrifying stuff. But the reality is, especially in the new Testament, we have access to the clarity of the gospel in a way that old Testament saints didn't have. Uh, they had a clarity and simplicity. We have a clarity in expansion. Uh, and one day we'll have the clarity of full sight. Uh, where faith becomes sight. And that's, I mean, it will be just, it, it, I, I, I can only imagine the amount that we know of salvation from 66 books in the scripture has got to be less than 1%. I, I, I got to imagine that. And, and, and to me, I can see that already, which means it's got to be far bigger than that. At what what God is actually doing. I mean, we have references to the fact that his salvation is going to redeem all things in creation. Down, down, to, down to grains of sand and to plants and animals. There's, there's going to be, there's something to it that's so much bigger than we think. And we just haven't seen it yet. And I think that's awesome. Um, but again, the, the teaching comes back. Is there anything we can do now, even as New Testament saints, is there anything we can do to bring that about? Nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. We can't make that happen. We can live in light of it. And we can live in accordance with it. But we cannot make it so. We cannot make the new heavens and the new earth appear. We cannot make the second coming of Christ happen. We can't force God's hands even though he listens to us, which is a grace I think that we forego often. Zechariah reminds us of these limitations and the tendencies of man's heart and then turns what all prophecy should be, is a warning to repent and trust in the Lord. Prophecy is not primarily about the future. I think you can see that. Even here, this isn't really about the future. It's dealing with current events that are going on. They're saying, don't, you know, remember the faithfulness of God. Don't remember the faithlessness of your, of your ancestors. Where they hardened their hearts because they heard the law and they didn't want to hear it anymore. They heard the promises of the Lord and they didn't want to hear that anymore. All of these things, the laws and the promises of God, were sent by 
the Lord's spirit here in verse 12. He did that through the former prophets. I think it is important to address the reality that wherever the spirit is, expect life on his heels. And here, what is the way of life? What is the message of life? The law and the promises of God. Now, if you want to turn that into New Testament language, the law and the gospel of God. The gospel is a promise. It's not a list of things to do and don't. It's not a description of what your Christian life should be. The law is a promise. Only God can do it. It is for us to depend upon him. That is why salvation is by faith and by grace. It is not because our works aren't good enough. It's because it's not by might. It's not by power. It's not by works. It's only by my spirit that such life comes. This is not a new teaching that was made up by Paul. This has been the way that God has interacted with his people for all time and eternity. Promises of God are accomplished by him. Salvation of God is accomplished by him. It is not accomplished by us. We can't save ourselves. To be perfectly honest, we would be just like these people who hearing the law and the promises of God, we would harden our hearts unless God soften our hearts. And in fact, like the promise of Ezekiel, remove the hearts of stone and give us instead hearts of flesh. And then write the new law of God inside our hearts that we would follow out of a desire, not a requirement. And so let me encourage you as Christians, as we are here in the delightful Old Testament prophets, let me encourage you with this. If you are following the law of God begrudgingly, and you're saying, well, he, it's just kind of like this cosmic killjoy. You know, here's, here's some stuff I really want to do, but he keeps saying no. And I, this really is something I'd really like to do, but this and that. Um, Christians are expressed as following the law of God as though it were a law of liberty. You know what that means? We're told that directly in James chapter 1, that for us, the law has become a law of liberty. Now, does that mean we get to go out and break the law? Nope. It means we get to follow the law as something already fulfilled. Christ already fulfilled the law. It means we pursue the law with the freedom of knowing that when we fall flat on our face and fail it, there's no condemnation to us. Why? Because Christ already fulfilled it on our behalf. Life comes through the promise of God, not through the accomplishments of his people. Life will still come to those who trust in Christ. How many of you broke the law of God this week? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any condemnation for you? Why? Because you promised to do better? Because you tried better? Or because you didn't really mean it? No. And why is the blood of Christ so effective to that? It's not just because it's his blood, though it is that. It is also because he fulfilled the law. Which means there can't be condemnation to those who are in his blood. Because the law is not being fulfilled in us. The law has already been fulfilled. We follow it as a fulfilled law. That is, that is a, 
extrapolation of all of this to the New Testament that we're going to talk a lot about because the Spirit of the Lord addresses this throughout the New Testament. But there will be this, this understanding that the foundation stones of this are being laid. Our responsibility to this is the same that it's always been. Do not become wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil, and he will direct your steps. The evil one will flee from you when you resist him. Not because you are powerful or intimidating to him, because that is the promise of the Lord. That is not a reward for your goodness or your mighty acts. You better hope you aren't powerful enough to achieve the law, lest you become wise in your own eyes. I pray that the sins in our lives continually humble us to come back to Christ. Sin has that role in our life to keep us humble, lest we become proud without end. And due to that, we're no longer under the law because it's been fulfilled. Correct. Correct. The law is in effect, but the law has been fulfilled in Christ on our behalf. So we pursue the good things of the law and the life-giving things of the law, not out of fear of reprisal or punishment, but out of a pursuit of life because we know the value of it. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, By the way, so were the Old Testament saints, but that's another class. Um, Let's pray here at the end. Father, we're grateful for this day. We're thankful, Father, that your promises are not dependent on our faithfulness. If they were, not a single promise of yours would ever have been seen. You promise, Father, to save those who put their faith in Christ. Not because faith is some enormous work. Father, it is just a dependence on him. And he promises that those who do so, he gives life and that more abundantly. Father, that is what we desire in our lives. To be able to see Christ clearly and the mightiness that we think we have or those moments where our pride rises up and finds ourselves better than we thought. We pray that our sins consistently remind us of our own humble state. And we cast ourselves on Christ the same as the day we were saved, we still do today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.